the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome today, Chris Carrier. Chris is a PA who works in orthopedics specializing in hand surgery. Chris also creates content for our event apps at our conferences, and he helps conference attendees navigate the app. Thanks for being here today, Chris. Yeah, sure. Today's podcast will be based on your talk at our recent orthopedic boot camp titled Hand Injuries Not to Miss. During this talk, you presented several case studies, and that will be the subject for our podcast. Welcome today, Chris. Great. Thanks for having me. What about compartment syndrome of the hand? I've seen this once or twice, and what can you say about it? I'm not sure if anyone asked this question along those lines, but does your physician consent for a carpal tunnel release with every distal radius fracture, or ORIF? So what we usually do is we just consent them for a distal radius fracture, ORIF. If they had symptoms of carpal tunnel in the office, because that's typically where we would see them, if they had symptoms in the office, we would say, yep, we're going to plan on doing a carpal tunnel release. If we saw them in the hospital and we're taking them to the OR, we would update the consent and say, yeah, we're going to do a carpal tunnel release. Even if we see them on the day of surgery and they didn't have any kind of carpal tunnel symptoms in the office, but now they do, we would just update the consent and say, yep, we're going to do it at the same time. So we don't consent everyone with a distal radius fracture for a carpal tunnel release, but everyone that has numbness on exam, in addition to their distal radius fracture, we will consent for a carpal tunnel release at the time of distal radius surgery. Okay. Your last case study was about pediatric distal radius fractures and possible displacement. Your recommendation is to follow the distal radius fracture, and we're talking about pediatric distal radius fractures. Your recommendation was to follow up for one to two weeks to make sure that any displacement or angular deformity doesn't worsen. Do you do sugar tong splints as the initial treatment for a displaced angulated distal radius fracture, or do you cast it right away? Again, we're talking about pediatrics here. Let's say it's a four or five-year-old. Wow, great questions. That particular case was a, a relatively young kid. He was 11. He'd fallen on a trampoline around the 4th of July came in, saw somebody in the office within a few days of his injury. They took some x-rays. He had a minimally displaced distal radial metaphyseal fracture. The growth plates looked like they were doing fine. They put him in a short arm cast and they had him follow up in a month. And as luck would have it, I happened to be the guy that they were following up with. So I got some x-rays on him and his minimally displaced fracture had undergone significant angulation in the cast. There was a whole bunch of displacement. And so then we talked to his parents and ultimately took him to the operating room where we had to kind of break through a month's worth of healing to line the bone up better and then put some pins in. And that was just sort of the beginning of his misfortune, but I'll get into that a little bit later. So to kind of get back to the question, A lot of times, if I personally see somebody that has some sort of displaced fracture, if it's a fracture that I need to push on, then I will absolutely put them in a sugar tong splint and I follow them a week out from the reduction so that I can check an x-ray and make sure that it's there. I also tend to follow them for a second week. So the way that I was taught, you follow them for the first two weeks. If they don't move within the first two weeks, the bone's sticky enough that you can take them out of the sugar tongue splint and put them into a cast and let it finish out the healing in a cast without having to worry so much about it falling apart. 
if someone's just displaced and there are a few days out where I think that they might not do a tremendous amount of swelling, I'll sometimes put them in a cast and I will just try to mold their cast really well, maybe not to correct the angulation if it's in what we would consider an acceptable range, but just to keep the angulation from getting any worse. But I will still generally follow them for the first two weeks so that we're not caught by surprise by some late breaking change in the position of the fracture that then makes us have to go back and do stuff. If they're younger, oftentimes we can we can get them into a cast, pretty much for the most part, we can get them into a cast relatively early, but I would still follow them along. So for adults, I would definitely, if it needed a reduction, push on it, do close reduction, put them in a sugar tongue splint. That allows for plenty of healing or swelling to go on while they're kind of in the acute phase, and then we can kind of reevaluate at week two and then hopefully get them into something. How much deformity you can accept is different based on their age. And so if they're, you know, younger than eight to 10, you can accept more angulation. Kids do a great job of healing. And so for really, really young kids, you know, three, four, five years old, you can accept a tremendous amount of displacement and it generally winds up doing okay. When kids get older, you can take less, but you know, the numbers that I still carry in my head are generally about 15 degrees of angulation in a couple different planes is, is sort of the standard, but it really is age dependent. And so I usually just kind of have a look at the patients and then have a look. The, the reference that I tend to use is called tolerances because it's really great. It's quick. It's if the kid is this old, you can take this many degrees in this plane, this many degrees in that plane. You can take this much opposition. You can take this much angulation. And kids are generally pretty good at healing a bone with a, a fair bit of angulation, as long as it's in kind of the acceptable range. And they will remodel that. And that's the beauty of, of kids and fractures. The growth plate is pretty good at correcting for a lot of stuff. The bone knows what shape it's supposed to be. It knows how it's supposed to be lined up. And as long as we can get it pretty close, we let time and biology take over and it can usually correct a, a whole host of things going on. For our particular kid, you know, one of, one of the things that we had talked about with this case study also is, you know, sort of this, he was put in a cast early on, never followed. We saw him late. And so it's hard to pick up these complications when they're really late, it makes it a little bit more challenging. He came back in, he had pins in, I had padded his pins in the OR. When he went into a cast, they didn't really do a great job of managing the pins appropriately. And so when he came out of his cast after surgery, so he's probably a month out from surgery, I could only find one of the three pins that we put in because the other two had kind of sunk down below the skin and were buried in there. And so, you know, one of the cautionary tales for that is, you know, make sure that something's being done to keep those pins on the outside. I'm pretty neurotic about how I wrap them up, but that probably would have helped him. So then we had to take him back to the operating room a second time to dig out the two pins that had kind of buried themselves under there. Okay, Chris, how much angular deformity can you accept at different age groups, knowing that the fracture will remodel? I'm specifically, again, referring to distal radius fractures. As somebody that's done a lot of this hand surgery stuff, that's not always the forte of everyone. I think that you're never going to be wrong if you're unsure about what you're looking at to get it to the hand surgery folks or people that are more comfortable with managing that. But I usually recommend that you get it there sooner rather than later. A lot of times you just need to have a high index of suspicion 
if there's a history and an x-ray that aren't lining up right with the clinical picture. And so, you know, when I think about these perilunate dislocations that get missed, it's my wrist is killing me, but the x-ray is read as normal and that really shouldn't happen. So there has to be something else going on in there. Um, and so it's just a matter of trying to figure out what they have going on. And, and if you're not sure, just get it to the guys that do hand stuff and they'll be able to kind of figure it out. If it looks like they have the canaval signs, then that's a you know, worrisome picture for a septic flexor tenosynovitis. That's really fairly urgent. High pressure injection injuries can develop into something really pretty urgent. And so those are, are you know, really quick referral to hand. Some of the other things that might be you know, a week or so until they wind up being seen. But as long as you get them to the people that can take care of them, usually we can make it turn out pretty well. Chris, thank you for being here today. Listeners, I've been chatting with Chris Carrier, a PA who specializes in hand surgery. And Chris, thanks again for being on our podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. It's been a great time. Thank you for joining the Ortho PAC podcast. We also welcome you to visit our website, paos.org, where members can download virtual conference content and get Category 1 CME. Also, if you're a non-member and you're interested in our CME content, please visit the aapa.org Learning Central for the PAOS virtual content.